Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're looking at maps, rare and collectible maps. We're joined by Daniel Crouch uh, from the UK. Daniel is a specialist map dealer and he's the co-owner of Daniel Crouch Rare Books, which offers antique atlases, maps, plans, sea charts and descriptions of voyages dating from the 15th to the 19th centuries, as well as prints, globes and cartographic reference books. Daniel Crouch Rare Books was founded in 2010 and it's a partnership between Daniel and Nick Trimming. Daniel has been a bookseller since the age of 16 while Nick began his career with the auction house Bonhams. They have galleries in London and New York and you can also meet them and see their maps and atlases at most of the world's major rare book fairs. Welcome Daniel. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, lovely to be speaking to you. Now, my first question is a very basic one, but how did all this begin? How did you get into the rare map business? Well, I started when I was, uh, as you mentioned, rather young. I was 16 and very naively uh, thought I could get a job from a job centre. Um, and it turns out I got a career from a job centre, which is rather unusual. I was looking for some beer money as a student um, at school. And I walked into the job centre and there was a little advert, handwritten advertisement, don't, don't get those anymore, um, for a, a small bookshop in Oxford. And when I walked in the door there, there was this uh, 80 or something year old lady, sadly no longer with us, called Colleen. And I asked about the job and she said, a job? There's no job here. And she did speak like that. She was a very strange character. Um, bit, bit of a Mrs. Malaprop. She once described, Christopher Columbus circumcised the world. Um, and... Just as I was about to walk out the door, there was a small puff of smoke from this Italian manageress who was running the place at the time, smoking in a bookshop. And she called me to the back of the shop and I said I was interested in a job. And um, she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And she was on the phone. And on the phone, she said, can I speak to Daniel Crouch, please? And I sort of, there's a lot of confusion. I finally managed to explain that that was me. And she turned around and said, ah, would you like a job? And that's how it started. Now, Believe it or not, that was, it's a true story. And there's a totally rational explanation, which is that her late husband was a don at Christchurch in Oxford. And she'd been having dinner the night before with my parents' next-door neighbours. And they'd mentioned their next-door neighbour wanted a job. But uh, none of that was known to either of us as I walked in the door. And so some could say it's fate that I ended up in this business. Did you have any idea what you were getting into? <laughs> none whatsoever. In fact, on my first day there... A, uh, a lump of plaster fell out the wall as Oriel College, who owned the building, were uh, destroying some real tennis courts. It's a very Oxford story. Um, and hit me on the head. And Barbara, the then manager, made such a fuss about this that Oriel decorated the entire first floor of the shop for free. And Barbara jokingly said, now this can be our map department. Daniel, you are now officially our map department manager. I've only been working there for a few hours. And uh, little did I know that that sentence would <laughs> determine my rest of my career. So can you remember the first, uh, I don't know, rare and collectible map that you actually handled? Uh, the first one I ever bought was actually while I was at Sanders, and I've got a copy of it sitting next to me right now. It's a, a copy of Sellers Atlas Minimus. It was incomplete in Sanders then. Um, and Barbara jokingly, when I was clearing out a whole revolt, you, you, it's impossible to conceive how much of a mess this shop was um i was clearing out a revolting corner of it and she jokingly said i could buy anything i saw there on the price that was written on it and i happened upon this incomplete copy of a seller's atlas minimus and she quickly regretted her sentence as i bought it for 150 quid 
and you still have it today or you have a copy no, of it I today? Just, no I, we, 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 we did a terrible thing to that copy of that book um, and sold it as separate maps but I, I bought another copy uh, later to remind me of it right okay so if we jump forward to uh, 2020 now you and your partner you've got uh, galleries in London and New York so if I was to walk into one of those galleries today if you know I'm sure, certainly hope they'll be open soon again. Uh, what would I see? Well, the first thing you'd see walking to uh, one or two shops would be a surprising lack of books for a bookshop. Um, we don't have an enormous inventory. We have a very select uh, inventory of atlases and separately published maps. And so despite the fact the firm is called Daniel Crouch Rare Books, I don't think there's a single book in the front room of our shop. It's mostly maps on the walls. Um, and when you get through to the, the, the red room in London, as it's called, um, there's only about 30 or 40 books on display. They're very nice books, but there's only a few, very few of them. Of, of the maps on the walls, I suppose what marks us out from everybody else is that we sell separately published maps. So on the whole, not maps that are ripped out of books, like my poor Sarah Atlas Minimus. But... Um, maps that are made simply as maps in their own right and the way we display them is probably different from most other people's we tend to look for a, uh, a more contemporary uh, style of framing and uh, treat our books more as objects than as things to go on a library shelf so i definitely would see a lot of things actually on the walls which is how a collector would have them in his home or her home well it depends on it depends on how 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 your collector collects. I think these days people have fewer things on their walls and they look for one or two statement pieces in terms of decoration. Um, and similarly, uh, book collectors, I mean, book collections are very private things. They, 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 they're not ostentatious. Um, and many people keep their, their, their most precious books hidden away. All right. Now, um, here's a really general question, but why do people collect rare and collectible maps? Is it... Is it because they tell us something about the past? Yeah, I mean, the question is why people collect maps it has almost as many answers as there are maps. But I always like to say that uh, collectors collect stories and people are interested in the story. Now, um, maps can tell us various stories about the past. Now, sometimes that can be very, very personal. Um, I'm, uh, I, I myself collect maps of Oxfordshire, and that's because it's the one continent in my life. I was born here um, and, and, and continue to live here. And so I have enormous interest in the history of the place, whether it's nostalgia or, or, or great love for obviously the most beautiful city on earth. Um, so that's, that's, that's one reason to collect maps. But it might be that you're also interested in a particular map maker or period of history. I know American Revolutionary War maps are very popular. Um, and nowadays, a lot of people seem to collect uh, propaganda maps or persuasive cartography or cartoons. There's many, many reasons why one wants to collect maps. But essentially underlying all of them, uh, the combination of, of the story and then the, the graphic beauty of a map. So here we are, two English people chatting on the internet. Um, now, I was brought up in a home that had an antique county map on the wall, Staffordshire. Um, you've just mentioned nostalgia. I, I, I mean, I thought everyone had maps on the wall growing up, but that was probably just because I was in the countryside and everyone seemed to do it. But it seems to me nostalgia is a strong reason to collect maps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wish everybody did have maps on the wall at home. I certainly do. Uh, not as many as I'd like, but my wife, but rather more than my wife would like. Um, certainly, people, you know, uh, 
look back to their their, their childhood. I mean, we, we, we all have a very strong, strong sense of place, whether it's where we're from, uh, where we're going, where we've emigrated from, where we've been on holiday. Um, and I think that, that, that sense of place, is maps express that beautifully. And people might have affection for, for, for a trip they took and start collecting uh, maps of where they went on honeymoon or where they'd worked for a few years. And that's one way into the geographic uh, comfort of maps. Now, um, let's talk about two particular types of maps, which are very visual. So first of all, um, something called data visualization maps. And there's also pictorial maps. Um, what's the difference between the two, first of all? So, so both are forms of persuasive cartography in that the, the map maker is trying to convince the reader of something for some reason. Um, data visualization, which is an area we specialize in greatly and something I love, um, is where real data in terms of numbers are used to tell the story of the map. Uh, perhaps the most famous example of data visualization and very pertinent for our uh, current predicament with coronavirus is the first epidemiological map, which is the John Snow map of the 1854 cholera epidemic in London, which depicted all the deaths in Soho around the, the water pump. And it really established the link between water supply and cholera. Um, and the data for that was rather gruesomely, you know, deaths. And they were marked on the map with these very, very graphically distinct coffins. Now, that's not the first data visualization map I hasten to add. The first data visualization map is the 1540 uh, Munster, which counts the number of islands in the Philippines and therefore expresses a number uh, very accurately as it happens, um, expresses a number on a map for the first time, as far as I'm aware. Um, whereas pictorial maps, they tell their story and try to convince in a different way. Uh, they do it with graphic imagery. Now, whether that's a caricature map depicting rulers of different countries as personifications of their uh, of their state, um, in particular poses that that, that 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 tell a story and try and persuade, or whether it's uh, a map of Silicon Valley showing rather neat little caricatures of the different companies that are there in the early 1980s. Both examples which are hanging on our walls at the moment. So, um, would maps showing geology? be a data visualization map absolutely um, one of my favorite map stories of all time is the, the william smith map that changed the world the geological map of the british isles from 1815 it's the first geological map in fact um, and william smith of course being born in oxfordshire is a is, is uh, someone i'm particularly interested in and uh the geological maps are really really fascinating because they show uh underlying rock formations um, and in the form of an early chloropleth map where a uniform colour uh, tells a, a link in data. And in this case, it's a, it's a geological um, underlying rocks. And of course, these have huge relevance. William Smith himself was a, a, a started off building canals when he started noticing the, the, the strata. But chloropleth geological maps have enormous contemporary relevance in that they're, they're used to, do, for example, to find oil, uh, similar geological uh, strata will give good indi strong indications to where oil can be found although it's probably worth zero dollars a barrel at the moment and pictorial maps so i'm thinking the easiest way for people to understand one use of that would be how they've been used by the tourism industry to encourage people to go to one particular place yeah absolutely and, and you get those 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 uh common uh, restaurant maps that you, you see on sort of place maps that show an area 
um, and all, all the various sites that a tourist could see in that area. That's a pictorial map. Similarly, uh, in a tourist information center, you'd probably get, and then they, they, they tend to be three-dimensional or isomet uh, isometric maps showing a, a town in, in, in slight 3D bird's eye view. Um, and they, they show places of interest and are often very easily uh, identifiable places and easy to navigate because you can see not only the, the, the topographic view from above, but also you can see that what you're looking with your eyes in terms of what you're looking at with your eyes with, with the building. And I love all those maps that have um, from the colonial era that have um, interpretations of particular countries. I know Britain is always a bulldog or something like that if Britain have made the map, but Russia is, uh, I don't know. A bear, a bear. A bear, yes. And some people are octopuses or sort of octopi or something like that to, uh, to sort of to show their national characteristic according to what it was like in the year 1900. Yeah, those are the caricature maps I referred to earlier. I mean, uh, we have an enormous collection of those. It's something of a hobby of mine. And they're great fun. And it's a, it's a tradition that started really in the 19th century. I mean, there are one or two other examples. Um, one of my favorite cartographic tropes is the Leo Belgicus, which shows the development of the nation state of what we now know as the Netherlands in its uh, battle for independence from uh, Spain in the uh, 16th and 17th century. And um, those were showed um, the Netherlands in the form of a lion, which is based actually on a line from Julius Caesar, um, who described the, 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 the low countries as lion-like people. And it, it caught on because it fits the shape of the country from the, the lion's back of it facing one way or, or, or the lion facing outwards as well. It's another version of it. And those are very early sort of anthropomorphic maps or, or caricature maps that show the country as, a, as personified as a lion in this case. But really it's in the 19th century that these take off and you get with all the various wars, uh, particularly in Europe and around the world, you get these maps showing the great empires in the great game uh, personified as uh, either as animals or as uh, caricatures of their leaders. Now both of them, uh, data visualization and pictorial maps, really are they forerunners of what we call infographics today? Well, both are infographics, but yes, yes, certainly they are. Um, the important thing behind both of them is, is, is that they're propaganda or they're persuasive, and they are subverting or using, I should say, geography um, to tell a story and to convince someone of someone's argument. And um, there's a huge change in the map collecting market, which is that these maps that go beyond the geography have become much more fashionable in recent years. And I think that's great because I think they're really, really interesting um, stories involved in these maps. And I think that it's bringing people who might previously have bought only very old maps as historical uh, storytelling objects, much more interested into the, some, some of the newer material. Um, and it's been undervalued until really very recently. But in the last 10 years I'd say it's taken off and that you know that's great for the market and great for everybody really. So there seems to be lots and lots of maps from that empire building period the colonial period. Um, I presume that was because they were a practical necessity like they were people were exploring and recording the world or was it because it was I know a golden age of map making? I think the important thing here is to remember that history is written by the winners um, and obviously the great empires of the world have, have won and, and won big time and so it's, it's their story of the nation states that um, survives this day in terms of the, the maps that have survived. 
having said that, it's worth remembering, and especially when we're looking at the current period of history where it seems that internationalism is, for right or wrong, slightly on the wane, and the nation state and nationalism is reasserting itself rather sinisterly in, in, in Russia um, and in Turkey, um, and also with these slightly scary people in the Philippines and Brazil and the United States. Um, and it's worth remembering that the concept of the nation state and this nationalism, it's a relatively modern concept. The nation state as such was created really, you could date it to uh, the Treaty of Utrecht in 1648, the, the, the time of all of my Leo Belgicuses that I was talking about earlier. Um, before that, the modern nation state with borders that were hard-lined and could be coloured in on a map weren't so obvious. Countries did not have straight-line borders. They had pockets. Um, the nation state was secondary to the city-state in many countries like Italy and in fact in the UK as well sometimes. Um, I remember you know, maps of my own lovely Oxfordshire have bits of Oxfordshire appearing as uh, isolated islands in Berkshire and Buckinghamshire right the way through to the 19th century even. And it wasn't actually until uh, the 1970s, the 1976 Reformation, that the, the, the counties were defined as we see them today. So... Um, the idea of these hard-lined two-thirds or two-fifths pink uh, British Empire maps really is a particular period of time from about 1648 until now. And I mean, I think that a lot of the global problems have international solutions and those lines on maps, I mean, coronavirus and um, doesn't respect uh, what side of the line someone is on on a map. And I think poverty and immigration problems don't actually respect where the line is drawn and perhaps society needs to think less about those and more about um, the fact that countries are always connected together. So imagine if you had a family map making business and someone like Sarajevo you'd be a busy man. <laughs> yes you'd start to question whether four colours would be enough to distinguish between the different countries. Yeah fluid is probably the word we're looking for. Um, so all these years in, in handling and selling maps, um, what's the, the map you've been most excited to handle over the years? Well, I'm afraid to say it's a really, really easy question to answer because we had an exceptional uh, item and it is rather boringly the most expensive thing we've ever had as well. Um, but I handled a 1531 land map of the world. So it's a sort of six foot wide planisphere showing the whole world in 1531 that was hardly written about or known to Carter bibliographers. Um, so we got to do all the, the research and, and uh, publish it for the world. And the story of the map, you know, better still, the story of the map is a great one. Um, and contrary to what I've just said, this is a map that was not written by one of the winners, which is why it's, it's particularly interesting. It was made, uh, one can assume, for someone with Francis I's um, interest versus Charles V, uh, Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and the map actually gives the whole northeastern seaboard of America to France, something that was never done, and divides the world along the papal line of demarcation. But instead of splitting between Portugal and Spain, it gives you know, Spain a large chunk of the world, including the then Portuguese Philippines, Portugal a large chunk of the world. And oh, look, France is given a great deal. And what the map is is a, is a, is a proposal for peace between Valois, France and Habsburg, Spain, that was never, never done and never was. 
Um, and so it stands there sort of pickled in aspect of an aspiration for, for these great empires that you mentioned earlier that, 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 that never came to pass. And, you know, as maps go, that's about as sexy as it gets. And it really helps that the thing is also stunningly beautiful and, and slathered in gold and silver. It's now, by the way, in case you want to see it, it's in the uh, Louvre Abu Dhabi. So it's, a, it's an aspirational map. It's what they wanted the world to become if the deals had gone their way. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's an empire map and it's, but it's an internationalist map at the same time. It's also a map of the age of discovery. Um, and it's got, you know, it's got a dragon on it. What more can you want? Sea monsters? Of course, plenty. <laughs> All right. Um, so what motivates map collectors? Is it similar to books where they're into scarcity or books that are particularly old or books that have been influential or just plain beautiful. What are the motivations for someone who likes maps? Well, as I said earlier, it's the story. Uh, a compelling story is by far the most important thing. If you tell the story well, and if the map tells the story well, um, that's what people love. And that's what people love about maps. Um, that's not to say beauty is not important, but um, one of the things I, bore my staff to death with as I say that uh, rarity is not enough um, I get so frustrated and, and sorry if I'm stuck record about this uh, with some of my staff um, uh, so many book dealers and map dealers just don't get it and they, 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 they talk about you know one of three known copies one of six known copies well often the reason something's rare is because it's bad or boring so rarity in itself is not enough. An object needs to have a compelling tale behind it and a reason for why it's interesting. That's far more important than, you know, only three examples listed on OCLC. Now, for some of our book dealing colleagues, that's absolutely sacrilege to say such a thing. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm much more convinced, and I believe customers are much more convinced, and collectors enjoy more, uh, a, a good sale, a good tale. And uh, the historical importance and the story behind something trumps everything else. Now, after that, beauty, and then, of course, age, the older things are, the more interesting in many respects, and condition. And I put rarity behind all of that. So really, you're a storyteller. You're looking for the background story. Oh, absolutely. We, we go to uh, uh, a lot of efforts to emphasize that. Uh, Ten years ago, when uh, Nick and I first went out on our own, we made a couple of decisions that, you know, with hindsight were, were, were good ones. Uh, the first of which was we took that bibliographic jargon that you often starts at the beginning of booksellers descriptions, you know, folio and then a collation and then a, a description of the illustrations and the binding, which means very little to a neophyte collector. Um, that always started people's descriptions. And we took that information along with author title date and we didn't, dispose of it from our description we just stuck it out to one side and we started with a 15 15 word cell and then the story and then if people were interested in the author title date etc they could see that displayed to the left and this is i'm talking about printed catalogs but also on our website the the, the information and, and and if you like the hook uh is the thing we put front and center right i understand that um all right one last question um which we asked to everybody um, what book or books are you currently reading? Yeah, I thought about lying to you now because I don't want to seem like too much of a nerd, but actually beside my bed, the book I'm reading is a book called Astrolabes. Um, and it's by my good friend, Eric uh, de Lalonde and his father, who sadly passed away earlier this year, Dominique, 
Um, it is not a book I recommend for reading at bedtime because, which is what I'm doing, because it weighs about five kilos and it's in two huge hardback volumes. Um, and it hurts when it lands on your nose. I can tell you that from personal experience. But it's a fantastic book on the history and the story of the astrolabe. And it's just beautifully illustrated, well-researched, and includes some examples that the, 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 the Lalonde family have handled over the years. And I cannot recommend it more highly. And it's a brilliant, brilliant book. But I wanted to answer that it's Sandy Toxfix's Whistling for Elephants, which is sitting next to it on the bed. But I've only read about three pages of that. So that probably doesn't count. Right. OK, I think Sandy's will be lighter. But for the benefit of all the folks out there, what the hell is an astrolabe? Hmm. The word astrolabe comes from um, the Greek, astrolabe star. So it's literally translated as a, a star taker. And it is a two-dimensional representation of uh, the night sky um, that uh, sits on either brass or paper and enables the user to either determine place or time. So there are two purposes. There were two sorts of astrolabe. The, the first is a nautical astrolabe, which is if you know um, what time it is and um, what the date is, it will tell you, uh, based on the map on there, where in the world you are and people think these are the most common because they're the most famous and these are things people would use on ships to navigate by especially at night um and the other sort of astrolabe which people forget but was actually by far the most common was a terrestrial astrolabe which is where if you knew where you were which of course you do and what the date was you could find out the time so essentially they were nighttime clocks and these were consulted by uh you know everybody who could who could work out the mathematics they are fiendishly difficult things to use and makes me very make me very impressed by uh, the mathematical and, and and sort of spatial knowledge of of your 15th and 16th century navigator so they're more than just a star chart they're they're a functional tool really actually they, they are the earliest analog computers um and if you want me to get very serious about it, uh, the number of uses of astrolabes are incredible. It's incredible. Um, you can use them to navigate, to tell time, obviously, but also they can calculate uh, events such as Easter or Passover. They can be used to calculate the longitude and latitude of planets. Uh, they can be used to um, work out when certain events might occur, so do eclipses, comets, all sorts of things. Excellent. Okay. Well, I'm sure it's good reading. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Um, so many thanks to Daniel. That's Daniel Crouch of Daniel Crouch Rare Books. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us. Thanks so much indeed. It's been a pleasure. You can find Daniel's maps and atlases on Abe Books. You can also visit their galleries once they'll be open again in London and New York. And we'll see you again soon. <laughs>